0: What's up, 1130? We doing good? You you really do look good. I said that earlier. If you slid in here just a a hair late, I want to introduce myself. My name is Jason. I'm the pastor here at the church, and uh, it's just a good day to be in church together. And uh, maybe you're here today because it's Easter, and you want to not get in trouble from your parents or grandparents at lunch, and you can say, like, I went to church today. I think that's a great reason to come to church. There's lots of different reasons to come to church, and uh, all of them are good, so I'm glad that you're here. Uh, You know, there's lots of different Easter traditions out there. Maybe after this today, you're going to someone's house, there's going to be a big dinner. How many people are going to go eat like a ridiculous lunch after church? Let me see your hand. Awesome. Very cool. Um, Isaac's family's probably hitting Zaxby's drive-thru, heading to the house. I'm tired. Anyway, um... But uh, there's traditions like maybe you're going to go do an egg hunt or your kids will do an egg hunt. Maybe, maybe you're one of those adults that's still going to do the egg hunt. That's cool. I'm not judging you that much. But um, maybe you're going to hunt eggs, and uh, we did some of that growing up. I, I hate to sound like an old man who needs everybody to get off his lawn, but I feel like we've really softened up Easter egg hunts nowadays. Like back in my day, you had to really find them things, Okay. <laughs> I mean, they were hiding them in the gutters on the roof of the house. Like, you had to, it was in, like, the ant hill. I mean, if you wanted it, you had to go get it. Uh, but, hey, it's no problem. No big deal. Um, we're just softening kids up these days. Uh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, so traditions. But Andrew and I decided, you know, 13 years ago that we were going to be in ministry, be pastors. So we moved away from family, very close with our family, but we don't live near our family. And, uh and so we don't really have any Easter traditions except one. We have one Easter tradition, and that's being in Hope City Church on Easter Sunday. And so thank you for being a part of my Easter tradition this year. You're a part of that, so like we're all in this together. And uh, we just get excited because Easter is not just about the cross. It is about the cross, but it's about resurrection. It's about the fact that Jesus didn't stay dead. Had Jesus stayed dead, he would have been an incredible guy who taught and and loved people and did miraculous things, but he wouldn't have really differentiated differentiated himself from other teachers, religious leaders, like Gandhi. Gandhi was a great dude, but he's dead. No offense to Gandhi, but he's he's not here. Uh, Muhammad, you know, dead. John Smith, a little crazy, dead, right? And so what separates Jesus is the fact that like, He didn't stay dead, that he's alive. And he said in John 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. So in other words, Jesus was saying, like, we're not just going to celebrate the resurrection like this one time thing that happened. Jesus is like, it's who I am. Like, I, I I, I just can't help but make dead things come back to life. And so maybe you're here today, and you got things in your life that are dead. You know, maybe it was a dream that you once had; it's dead. Maybe it's your marriage; it's dead or dying. Maybe it's a relationship with your kids. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it is your faith. There's something in your life, and it's just it used to be alive, but it's dead now. Jesus says in John 11, "I am the resurrection." Like when you come in contact with Jesus, dead things come to life. And I don't know how that sounds to you. Because, uh, you know, sometimes we want Jesus without any of the crazy stuff. Uh, maybe we met, like, a crazy Christian one time, and so, like, they were just kind of nuts. And so we want to embrace Jesus, but we want to kind of leave all the stuff we don't understand to the side. Um, that's, how, that's how Thomas Jefferson felt. Thomas Jefferson created his own Bible. I don't know if you know this, but he created his own Bible. They called it the Jefferson Bible. It's a good name. And uh, he loved the teachings of Jesus, the morals of Jesus, But he was very cynical about the miracles of Jesus. He he struggled to believe that. So he literally took a Bible. He cut out the passages of teachings and, and morals. And he glued them in his own book and created his own Bible without any of the supernatural miraculous stuff. So wrap your mind around this for a second. That Thomas Jefferson had a Bible that had Jesus dying on Friday and never being raised from the dead. And I know you've probably never made your own Bible, but I think probably some of us in the room, like, we fully are kind of down with, you know, Jesus died for my sins, but he didn't just die. He lives, and he is resurrection, and so he, there's just dead things in your life. I'm getting, like, way ahead of myself, but I just wanted you to know that, that whatever you're, however you're here today, and whatever you brought in here with you, like, we just believe that Jesus changes things. He changes things in your life, and that's what today's going to be about for these next 25 minutes is just the miraculous uh, resurrection, extraordinary power of Jesus, all right? So uh, have you guys heard the story? Um, this happened actually a week ago uh, Sunday, so a week ago from today. Uh, have you guys heard the story about the eight-year-old in Ohio who drove his parents' car to McDonald's to get a cheeseburger? This is not a joke. is a real story. I know it sounds like I'm setting up a joke. True story. If you haven't read the story, I'll give you the details real quick. So, eight-year-old kid um, is at home. His parents are asleep. This is just free parenting advice for you. If you go to sleep before your children, something bad will happen. That's just free parenting advice for you, right there. And so, his parents are asleep, and as he decides late at night, I want a cheeseburger from McDonald's, which we can all relate to. There's not we get that, and so he doesn't know how to drive. He gets on YouTube. And he watches four or five videos about how to drive and feels like, I got it. So he gets his parents' keys, still sleeping, gets his parents' keys. He tells his four-year-old sister what he's up to, and she says, I want to go. So she gets in the car. They are in the car together. True story. He backs out of the driveway, gets on the road, obeys all the traffic laws, stops at all the red lights, hits nothing on his way, pulls into McDonald's and parks the car. Gets out of the car, and some of the McDonald's employees see this, but they think it's like a prank, so they go along with it. So the eight-year-old and the four-year-old walk up to the counter. They order two cheeseburgers. They pay with cash. They get their meal. They go sit down at their table, and they start eating their dinner. (laughs) The cops show up because they tracked the car because people were calling the cops saying there looks like there is a child driving down the road. Now, here's my favorite part of the story. They show up. They can't get a hold of the parents. They're still sleeping. <laughs> parents, sometimes you just need a nap. You know what I mean? Like, just I don't care what you do. Just leave me alone. I want to get some sleep. So they're still sleeping. They call the grandparents. They get the grandparents. The kids get their cheeseburger. They get the car back home. And I can only imagine, like, what that conversation was like. Like, knocking on the door. You're, like, kind of half-dazed. Like, what's up? It's like, here's your kid. Here's your car. Um... <laughs> Here's what happened. Thankfully, nothing bad happened. But I love. Here's what I love about that story. I love that. I love the audacity of the kid. I love the fearlessness of the kid. Like, I want a cheeseburger. My parents are asleep. If I asked them, they probably would tell me no. So I'm just going to YouTube it, and uh, that's how a lot of disastrous home projects have started for me. Like, I'll just YouTube it, and and this audacious kind of fearlessness of. I'm, I'm going to figure it out. It's, if I was going to spiritualize it, I guess I would kind of like describe it as almost like a childlike faith. This idea that like, sure, I mean, if we want to do it, we can do it. We'll, we'll figure it out. According to research, children ask 125 probing like investigative questions a day. Parents, how many of you know that's true? 125 sounds a little low to me. I don't know. Why, Dad? How, Dad? Pause that for a second, Dad. What about this, Dad? It's like, please just go talk to your mother. And um, and so 125 probing questions a day. And then I also read that um that that adults only ask six probing questions a day. So that means from adulthood or from childhood to adulthood, we lose 119 questions a day, right? My my five year old uh, Nora asked. What I thought was a brilliant question the other day, which I'm going to take up with God one of these days when I see him. She said to me, she said, Dad, why would bread be bad for you if it's in the Bible? I fully embrace that. I think that's great. Any carb lovers in the room with me? Like, we're just, it's biblical. So... Anyway, but yeah, so we, they ask questions. And so from a childhood to adulthood, we, we lose 119 questions a day. And here's what I think happens. This is my theory. I can't prove this. This is my theory. I think that when we go from childhood to adulthood, what begins to happen to us is we stop asking questions and we start making assumptions. And so we think we kind of know what's going to happen. We know what is and what isn't. And we kind of draw conclusions. And we do that in all areas of life, but we, it's really dangerous when we do it in our, in our spiritual lives because we go into our relationship with God kind of assuming what is and isn't possible what he can or what he won't do or what he will do it affects our prayer life it affects our faith like we like maybe you're here today and you just you've made all kinds of assumptions you stopped asking questions and you just started making all kinds of assumptions um, about God and about faith. Well, I want to read a story to you today uh, out of John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we're going to read a couple of verses. If you have a Bible, find that. If not, it'll be up on the screen for you. If you don't have a Bible, you can't afford one. We want to give you one as a gift. We, we think you need to have one, so just find us after service. But it's going to be John chapter 5, and I just want to kind of press in on you a little bit today to begin to ask more questions, to begin to believe God for more, to begin to expect some miraculous, supernatural things to happen in your life. In John chapter 5, we're going to see Jesus ask a man a really great question. And we're going to see the man make a really big assumption that, that Jesus was trying to help. So John chapter 5, verse 1, here's what it says. It says, afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. So just so you can kind of wrap, like, wrap your mind around this, put yourself in the moment here. This is literally like a, a community pool. So imagine being at like a water park, you know, and like umbrella tables and everything. Everybody's kind of just hanging out. This is a real pool. And uh, there's, there's five porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed. They laid on the porches. And one of the men lying there had been sick. For 38 years. And when Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Great question, would you like to get well? This is a great story to read on Easter because, spoiler alert, in case you have to leave, Jesus is about to resurrect something. And in this story, you have two polarizing people, two polarizing points of view. You have Jesus, who is this optimistic, uh, limitless, powerful guy. And you have this lame man who is uh, jaded, cynical, who has, has lost hope. The man in the story is not dead. He probably feels dead. Maybe he wants to be dead. And I want you to just put yourself in his place for a moment. For 38 years, he had been paralyzed. Going to the same spot every day, laying on the same mat, seeing the same People, I would be willing to bet that maybe he had some optimism the first year or two. It's gonna figure it out. Somebody's gonna help him. It's gonna, it's gonna work. But now we're 38 years into the same repetition, the same daily schedule, the same spot, the same mat, the same letdown, the same disappointment. I'm 33 years old. Um, I feel old, but I'm 33, and this is 38 years. So five more years, and I'll be at the length of time that this man has been going through this routine. And to make matters worse, the Bible tells us, or at least leads us to believe, that he was not born crippled. So it's one thing to be sick. It's a whole other thing to remember what it was like to not be sick. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a whole other thing to to lose your vision after you know what sight feels like. And so here's a man who is crippled 38 years. Same things over and over and over again. And I think it's interesting that the Bible um, doesn't tell us his name. It just, the Bible just calls him lame man. Which it, wasn't, it wasn't that the Bible was trying to be mean, it was just kind of a historical label, but I think it is also fair to say that you and I tend to label things based on the negative or bad things that happen in life. I think that would be, be fair. Like after we blow it or after somebody blows it or does something awful, a label gets stuck to them and we... Forget the positive qualities or the unique attributes of someone's life. And we just label them based on the most tragic, awful mistake they've ever made. Like, for example, um, it doesn't matter what is incredible about you. If you are a single mom, you're just known as the single mom. It doesn't matter. Like, you could be accomplished. You could be successful, wealthy. It doesn't matter. It's like, oh, yeah, the single mom. The divorcee. The uh, The addict. It doesn't matter what you've got going on in your life. It's like you're the addict or uh, the unemployed. Sometimes we stick the label on the actual name. Like if somebody's really overweight or something, we'll say like, oh, Big Joe, you know? Like if we actually attach it to them and label them, and if we don't label others or someone else doesn't uh, label us, we usually allow guilt and condemnation to come into our mind and our heart. We label ourselves, Right? Uh, and and when we begin to label ourselves and we begin to feel guilt and condemnation, we end up just as paralyzed as the man who sat there for 38 years. It reminds me of a, a, a joke that I heard about um, a man who walked into a pet store. And he walks into this pet store, and there's a parrot over in the corner, and the parrot sees the man, and he gets the man's attention. He's like, hey, come over here. So the guy walks over to the parrot, and the parrot says, you are the ugliest man I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, you can expect the man's probably upset. So he goes and he gets the manager and he says, you'll never believe what this parrot said to me and you need to fix this. So the guy leaves, the manager grabs the parrot, shakes him and says, don't ever do that again. A couple weeks later, the man walks back into the pet store and uh, the parrot sees the man. The parrot's like, hey man, come on over here. And so the guy walks over and the parrot looks at him and says, you are the ugliest man I've ever seen in my life. This dude is irate, and he goes and he gets the manager, and he's like, it happened again. This is what he said. If this ever happens again, I'm never coming back to this store ever again. He leaves. The manager goes to the parrot, to the bird, picks him up, shakes him, and says, don't ever do that again. If you do that again, I'm going to take you out back. I'm going to kill you myself. A couple weeks later, the man walks into the pet store. The parrot sees him. The parrot looks at the man and says, hey, man, come over here. The guy walks over. The parrot looks at him and says, you know. Now here's why I told you that story, because I think that's what happens to you and me. Some of you came in here today, and you're trying to worship God, and the whole time you hear this voice in your head saying, you know, you know, you want to have faith, you want to have a relationship with Jesus, and the whole time, all you can hear in your mind is somebody saying to you, like, you know, you know what you did. You know that if everyone in this room found out who you really were, then they would never let you be a part of this church. You know, you, you know, you know. And that's the way that guilt and condemnation get into our hearts and into our minds. And that's one of the things that I love about Jesus is that Jesus loves me right where I am. Like exactly how I am. He loves me just like that. But he loves me so much that he refuses to let me stay where I am when he knows that there is so much more destiny and greatness and purpose inside of me. So he throws his arms around me and he loves me right where I am. And then in his appropriate nature, he shows up in my life and he's just like, all right, come on, let's go here. Come on, a little bit farther. Come on, you can do it. He stretches me and he makes me uncomfortable. But the whole time he's growing me, never changing his love for me. Loves me right where, right where I am. And maybe you're here today and you're like, man, I, I, I hear this voice in my head, Jason. You know, you know, you know, you know, you know and you think that you could never get a second chance or a hundredth chance or a thousandth chance and God loves you. I just want you to know God loves you right where right where you are. So Jesus shows up to this guy on this day in John 5. And he asks a really bizarre question. He asks this question, do you want to get do you want to get well? No offense to Jesus, but it's a really dumb question, okay? Because this man has been paralyzed for 38 years. And Jesus shows up and says, Do do you want to get well? I mean, Jesus, of course, he wants to get well. He's been coming to this spot, he's been paralyzed, he's got no help, he's got no money, he's a crippled. What do you mean, do you want to get well, Jesus? Of course. He wants to get well, right? Look at what the man says in John 5, verse 7. He looks back at Jesus and he says, I can't, sir, for I have no one to put me in the pool when the water bubbles up. He's talking about this, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a, at the time during the day, it was this urgent urban myth, this legend. Theologians believe it's not actually true. Historians say it's not actually true, but what they believed was that when the water would get to stirring or get waves in it, uh, then if somebody who was messed up got in the water, they would be healed. And so this man, for 38 years, has been putting his hopes on a myth, on a legend. Um, and maybe we know what that feels like. You know, we, we put our hope in something else. And, and so he says, he says to Jesus, he says, I can't. No one's here to help me, and someone always gets there ahead of me. And I think it's so interesting that this man says back to Jesus, I can't. It's an odd response because it's not an answer to the question that Jesus asked. Jesus did not ask the lame man, can you be well? He didn't ask the man, can you get it together? Can you learn how to walk? He did not say, can you be well? He asked the man, do you want to be well? I think all of us would agree that there comes a a point after enough pain and heartache and disappointment when you just believe that things in your life will never change. And the devil begins to talk to you, and one of his biggest lies that he says is, if it's been this way for this long, it's always going to be this way. You are 48 years old, and you are still addicted to fill in the blank. You will always be this way. You are on your third marriage. This one ain't going to work, and you'll get married again, and that one will work because that's how it's always been, and it's always going to be that way. Your dad was a drunk. You're a drunk. Your kids are going to be a drunk. That's the way it's always been. So it's always going to be that way. He just keeps, he keeps telling us that lie in our heads. And so this man who's been coming to this spot for 38 years, I can understand why he believes that he can't change. I totally understand. I understand why he would give up hope. Can we just be honest and admit that after a while you get tired of trying and failing? Like after a while, you just lose optimism. Like after a while, you just lose hope. Like you've tried, you started to get out of debt plan, but now like you're bankrupt again. Like you tried to not find, be in a relationship with a terrible human being, but here he is again or here she is again. Like you tried, you were excited. Like you got all the new school supplies for the school year and this was the year the grades were going to come up. Two weeks later. Anybody like me, like, you got excited for school supplies because you were a terrible student? Anyway, all right. Um, You buy the new running shoes. This is the time. (laughs) Anyway, um, we used to get tired of trying and failing. There was a a research, a project done at the University of Michigan, a really simple study, but they brought in these volunteers, and they put one of those helmets on them that that, um, read brain activity. And so they, uh, they brought people in and they put them in front of a computer and they uh, had them play some type of wagering game on the computer and they monitored their brain activity whenever they would win large sums or medium sums or lose large sums or medium sums of whatever they were wagering. And as you would probably expect, you know, when they would win a large amount, brain activity in the front cortex would spike up. It was a big moment. But What was interesting about the study is that when they would lose the same amount or even, in some instances, lose less than the amount that they had won, the activity in their front cortex would spike and go even higher than when they had won. And here's what they found out in the study, is that losses mean more, stick around in our brains longer, and make more of an impact on our lives than wins. And I didn't need to tell you that study. Like, you know that's true. For all the athletes in the room, if I was like, hey, tell me about sports growing up, you would tell me about some wins. You'd tell me about a time when you hit the game-winning shot or you hit the ball or struck the guy out. You would tell me some wins, but you know what you would tell me more than your wins? You'd tell me your losses. You'd tell me about the time you didn't hit the shot. You'd tell me about the time that you almost got to the finals, but you lost in the semifinals. Why? Because the losses stick with us and mean more to us than the wins. If I asked you to tell me about relationships, you'd tell me about some great relationships in your life, but you know what you'd tell me about more? Dad who left you, mom who hurt you, friend who betrayed you. Why? Because losses matter more, mean more, stick with us longer. And so here's what they found at the end of this study is that as human beings, we are more afraid to lose than to try, than to risk winning. We're more afraid of losing than risking to win and so we stare at whatever our obstacle is or whatever's wrong with our lives or whatever we're not sure we can really try to change or go after and the fear of a loss paralyzes us from trying to get a win and i can almost hear the man's tired voice as he says to jesus like i can't jesus says do you want to be well and he looks at jesus he says i can't it's almost like he didn't even hear the question like he had spent his whole life in a defensive posture from everybody telling him how he should do it or what he should do or why he should have a job and he's a lazy bum and he's taking advantage of the government and like all these things and he spent his whole life being so defensive that he it's almost like he didn't even hear the question Jesus asked he's like I know I just can't and maybe you can relate to that maybe you've tried so many times in your life only to fail to try to be well, but after a certain point, you're just like, I can't try anymore. I can't try anymore. Like, Jason, hey, please believe me, I am trying to raise these kids, but I can't. Like, Jason, I, I'm trying to save my marriage and fix this thing, but I, I just don't think I can anymore. I'm trying to get clean from this addiction, but I, I can't, it's kicking my tail. I'm trying to find a spouse. I can I'm trying to get pregnant. I can I'm trying to forgive someone who has hurt me. And I really, I, I'm trying, but I can't. I'm trying to fix my finances. I'm trying to have a relationship with that parent who did me wrong. I'm trying to have faith, but I just can't. I can't. And if that's the way that you feel today, I want to encourage you because the Bible is filled with all of these examples of people who loved God, who God loved very much, who God did incredible things through, who said they can't. I mean, there's story after story in the Bible. I'll just give you a couple. I don't want to go on a rabbit trail here. But, like, God shows up to Moses in the desert and says, Moses, you're going to be my deliverer. And Moses says to God, like, I I can't do that. I can't. He shows up to Gideon and says, Gideon, you're going to be the leader of the army that's going to defeat the, the big bad army that's oppressing your people. And Gideon says back to God, I can't do that. I'm from the like, smallest, poorest family of the small, poor neighborhood. I can't do that. He, he, he shows up to Sarah, who's Abraham's wife. You remember that song you sang growing up? Father Abraham had many sons. You remember that? Well, at this moment, he had zero, okay? And so the song wasn't written yet. And so he shows, God shows up to Sarah and says, Sarah, you're going to be a mom. And you know what Sarah said? I'm 90 years old. I can't be a mom. I can't. I don't know if you know this story, but, but Moses sends 12 spies into a land to try to go get what God told him to go get. And they come back and they're like, it's exactly like God said it was. And the fruit's awesome and the land's awesome. It's amazing, But we can't defeat the giants that live there. rich young ruler shows up to Jesus and says, Jesus, how can I be the 13th disciple? Like, I'm ready. I'm all in. I want to do this thing. How do I get in? And Jesus says, great. Just go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come back, and you're in. And the rich young ruler didn't say it, but the Bible says he turned away and he walked away sad. And I bet he was thinking, I can't believe he asked me that I can't sell everything that I have and give it to the poor and so I can't is a common phrase but hear me it's never the answer to the question because Jesus didn't ask this man can you figure it out can you get it together can you do it he said do you want to be well do you want to live do you want to be free do you want to be healed Do you want to let go of your past? See, the story of Easter, the story of Jesus, the message of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. Like, literally, this is not a fictional symbolic story. Like, literally, Jesus, this is what you celebrate in Christmas, in case you did not know this, that Jesus came down to earth. And he lived for 30 years. Then he started his ministry. Then he did three years of ministry. He never did wrong. He never committed a sin. And knowing the whole time, he went and he died on the cross so that you and I would not have to pay the consequences for all the stupid things we do in our lives. The stuff we've done thus far and the stuff that we will do. Like, he literally did that. real person came to this earth and did that. And then, if that wasn't enough, he set up a system to where if you want to experience the life, like life with Jesus, you can have it. Like, no strings attached. Like, you can have it. But that's always been the catch. You gotta want it. You gotta want it. There's only two requirements to experience life with Jesus. It's not like other religions where you gotta memorize a lot of stuff and I don't know what your grandmother told you and maybe you thought church and religion and Jesus were all the same thing and there was all these rules. Nope, there's two requirements to experiencing a life with Jesus. Number one is you gotta believe it's true. Like everything I just said, you have to believe it's true. That Jesus really did come to earth and he really did die on the cross even though he didn't deserve it, we deserved it, but he died on the cross so that you and I wouldn't have to. And that he died, and three days later he rose from the dead. You got to believe that. And the second requirement is, you got to want it. It can't be because your wife wants it for you. It can't be because your parents want it for you. It can't be because you have a court date in three weeks, and the judge it would look good to the judge if you had it. Because your probation officer wants you to have it got to be because you want it and if you believe it and you want it you get it that's it and so we have a chance or a choice today to believe that we don't have to be like deep down inside you're listening to me right now and you know like you don't have to sit by the side of the road anymore You don't have to go to that same spot for 38 years just hoping, like buying lotto tickets, thinking it's going to change your life, or the next guy or girl that you move in with is going to change your life, or the next high you find is going to change your life, or the next credit card balance. Like It's just the same, like hopeful, this is going to do it, and it doesn't do it. You don't have to spend 38 more years sitting by the side of the road hoping losing hope you can have life with Jesus when you came in today you were given a glow stick go ahead and grab that for me why don't you go ahead and break it go ahead and break that shake it up a little bit no matter how old you are glow sticks are cool unless you're like at six flags and they're $14 then they're not cool So here's why, here's why I gave you this glow stick tonight or today. It's because I want you to remember something about Jesus. I think maybe this will help you remember. As long as you and me act like everything is fine, like we don't need any help, we got it together, we're good. As long as we believe that, or act like that. We can't experience the hope of Jesus. But the moment that we're willing to admit to ourselves and to him that we are broken, that's when something beautiful happens. You know, Jesus lived and spent three years loving people and teaching and doing miracles, and that was incredible, but that's not the reason he came if that's all he would have done, then that would have been cool, but it wouldn't have been why he came. He wouldn't have fulfilled his purpose. Jesus came to be broken, to die on the cross for you and for me. And when his body was broken, something beautiful happened. And the best way that I can think of, go ahead and hold him up. Come on, the best way that I can think of to celebrate easter is for you and for me to admit that we're broken because what's amazing about being broken no one signs up to be broken like ah, jason i just would like to be broken you know but here's what's amazing about every time most of the time in life especially with jesus but most of the time in life it's all the broken times and broken moments when the most beautiful things happen And there are some things in life, like this glow stick was kind of cool without it being broken, but when you break it, it gets a little cooler. And if we can look at Jesus and we can admit to ourselves and admit to him and say, God, we're broken. He will make something beautiful out of our lives. Let's pray.